0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This week, I'm joined by Anna Gifty Apoku-Ajiman, Anna is a researcher, writer, science communicator, and activist. She is the co founder of the Sadie Collective, the only nonprofit organization addressing the lack of Black women in economics and related fields, and the editor of the Black Agenda Bold Solutions for a Broken System, a new book of essays on policy solutions to social problems written by Black activists.
2: Republican Glenn Youngkin's closing message to Virginia voters has almost singularly focused on weaponizing race, stoking hysteria over the coded boogeyman of critical race theory, which is not currently taught in any Virginia public school.
3: Leave it to the state of Florida to take anything to the next level. Florida Senate Education Committee just passed a bill called individual freedom that would prohibit schools and private businesses from making white people feel uncomfortable when teaching or training about historic racism
1: and now that we're all on the same page we just can focus on making sure that everybody is taking action you know effective action not just black squares on instagram
3: how do we solve racism well it appears that following the death of george Floyd.
2: black to their bio. Hi, my name is Anna Gifty of poco I am the editor of the Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System, which is out everywhere now. And the statement I'm gonna share is, ignoring black experts doesn't make you better as an individual organization or institution. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Anna, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we get started into the book, will you just give our listeners a sense about who you are and your incredible work, please?
2: Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on the show. This is an incredible honor. My name is Anna Gifty Apoku-Adjaman. I'm a 25-year-old researcher, writer, activist, entrepreneur, currently actually a PhD student at Harvard Kennedy School and the new editor of a book called The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System.
0: You said researcher. And before I go on with the more important questions, I want to just talk about that word because I think it gets thrown around nowadays, especially with the disinformation going around about the vaccine where people are like, do your own research. Let's talk about what that word really means. And when you say you're a researcher, what are your qualifications? So that people know when they're Googling shit, it doesn't mean they're actually researchers.
2: I'll say this, doing a quick Google search is not sufficient in terms of calling yourself a researcher. So let's just go ahead and put that to rest. Thank you. On my end, though, the reason I call myself a researcher is currently I'm getting my PhD in uh, Harvard Kennedy School and book policy and economics. And so I'm literally working to find tools to ask questions about the world around us and using evidence to do that. We're not out here just making up facts out of thin air, right? We're actually looking at the data and saying, "Okay, what do we need to conclude based off of it?
0: Okay, so tell us about the book and tell us about why it's important, why you wanted to put this book together.
2: Absolutely. So The Black Agenda Bold Solutions for a Broken System is a essay collection first and foremost that brings together 35 black experts To talk about a number of different policy areas. This is actually the first book of its kind. Trust me, I checked. The only, I would say the closest thing to it is probably something called Black Genius, which featured Spike Lee, like early 2000s, maybe late 1990s. But that book actually has been out of print, it seems, for quite some time. So this is really the first book to bring Black folks who are in these policy research areas, as well as activists, to sort of tell us what do we do next. And so The book, in and of itself, being an important piece of work is really because Black folks have been excluded from the mainstream and public discourse. So I decided to raise my hand and ask a question. Do Black experts matter? While the answer is obvious, yes, of course Black experts matter. Nearly everyone in the mainstream, prior to the racial justice protests in the summer of 2020, would have you believe otherwise. The glaring omission of Black experts is so commonplace across Western society that it's become normalized. It's really hard to find, quote unquote, Black experts who can weigh in on some of these issues. And so this book came together really because I was a bit visible in my own space in economics. And I saw that people were reaching out to me and I said, I'm cool giving you like my two cents on Biden. But at the end of the day, I'm not really the best person to talk to. So essentially, that's really what inspired the book. The fact that they were missing from the mainstream and the fact that people were reaching out to me.
0: I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions that might seem just painfully basic, but apparently they still need to be asked because a lot of people don't seem to understand. Why is it important to follow the lead of Black experts on
2: issues that disproportionately affect Black people? I like to put it like this The best outcome for Black people is a better outcome. For everyone else. So, what do I mean by that? If you think about marginalized identities, people who are facing burdens across any aspect of society, almost always they are Black or Brown. And so, if you think about individuals who are coming up with solutions in those communities, not only are they addressing the problems in their communities, but largely they are thinking about the broader impacts on other communities as well. So I'll give you a very clear example about this. So I was actually in fifth grade when this happened, the financial crisis of 2008, just to give you a sense of my age. A lot of people don't know that Black economists were actually ringing the alarm about what was going to happen with the financial crisis back in like 2006, 2007. They were saying, look, Black communities are facing an obscene amount of foreclosures. There's predatory loaning happening in these communities. What are we going to do about it? And so the economic entities at the time largely ignored Black economists, and eventually we got 2008. So a lot of times what I like to tell people is that based on the work that we've seen here in the book and elsewhere, Black communities oftentimes, when they're going through a crisis, are a precursor to what's going to happen to the country overall. And so it's really, really important that when you're thinking about solutions from Black communities or with respect to Black communities, that you have Black experts at the helm of those solutions.
0: Okay, and second, why have we in America not been following the lead of Black experts? Racism. That's it. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's exactly why I asked that question, because I, I knew that answer and I wanted you to say it out loud. It really is incredible how disconnected we are, and yet we pretend to be so righteous in our anti-racism. And yet it feels like we can't allow room even for Black leaders to lead without some sort of criticism from white. Not only, by the way, not it's not only people within communities, it's people within the activist community and advocacy groups. And these are people who seemingly are projecting this ideal of intersectionality and yet they don't understand the concept of just stepping back and letting our Black leaders lead. To me, there's never been a moment in American history when we have allowed that to its full potential and we've still seen amazing things from Black leaders.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would say that it really boils down to humility. You think you're so prideful enough to like have a say on every single issue. You've missed it, right? This idea of black people can only talk about black issues, but black issues are separate from societal issues. There's a sense of entitlement there, right? Like you're not taking a step back and looking at the fuller picture. And perhaps it's because you're afraid of what you're going to see. When you step back and you give black people Room to devolve their expertise and to devolve what they understand about the world, you're afraid that you're going to get implicated. My whole point around that is at the end of the day, you have to be humble enough to recognize that there are some blind spots you have, and that informs your worldview and how you look at the different issues that you're hoping to address as an activist or as an advocate. And so it's absolutely important that you center the Black folks in your respective space. There's a non binary creative at the end of the climate chapter called Ari Linton Smith who talks about how, as a Black queer creative, in sustainability, in the environmental space, you're facing a completely different world than your white counterpart. While you're out here advocating for mutual aid because you need to live and pay rent, the white counterpart is getting deals from Patagonia. Not saying Patagonia is doing that. I'm just saying as an example, right? It's night and day. And we see this empirically with even how t- TikTok creators are treated based off of race and how the algorithm works. This idea of a racist system, it's the air we breathe. And so until we address that the air we breathe is poisonous, we're all going to be subjected to the same sort of harms that it can um, possess.
0: I'm so happy you mentioned the algorithm because to me, that is the most dangerous part of society right now. That to me is the most horrifying part of where we are in every aspect, whether it be misinformation, whether it be young girls looking at things that are beauty that is totally unattainable. We are so set in our silos because of these algorithms. And to me, that is a terrifying part of it. In your introduction of the book, you write, reading this book, or even implementing the solutions in this book, will neither solve solve racism racism, nor nor excuse
2: excuse the bigotry bigotry that lines the pockets of the 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 most powerful. powerful. Should individuals and institutions read, reflect, and adopt these ideas? Of course. Is this audiobook justifying the avoidance of other bold and transformative ideas beyond the collection? Absolutely not. This audiobook is not a short-lived, Listen to pacify guilt. This is about a way forward, one that includes us all.
0: Oh, I just got goosebumps. Can someone truly say that they're an ally if they show up at marches, use hashtags, claim to be anti-racist, but don't advocate for the policies proposed by Black experts?
2: Obviously not. (laughs) But I think the other point about that as well is that it's not enough just to show up because showing up hasn't always been the way forward. Like, people showed up to the March on Washington, and that was like a substantial thing, right? It was significant. I'm not taking away any significance from that. So showing up is like the bare minimum of the bare minimum. You showed up, great. I think people were putting black boxes on Instagram. Not sure what that was supposed to achieve. Unfortunately, the momentum of summer 2020 seemed to be short-lived. While Black experts were being tapped to join initiatives aimed at racial healing and diversity, equity, and inclusion, efforts in support of Black Lives Matter were reduced to occasional articles centering Black stories and Black boxes on Instagram. Yes, people did this and thought that it was sufficient. However, had that been parlayed into, you know, as somebody who has a platform, I'm going to go ahead and invest money, capital, into changing the circumstances maybe I would have been like okay at least you're bringing awareness to something that can then be parlayed into a systemic change but I think the idea is or what I'm getting at with that paragraph is the fact that people are looking for an easy way out they're saying I don't want to feel bad about this anymore I don't want to be labeled racist so how do I find the easiest way out of this entire circumstance and the truth of the matter is there is no easy way out to a 400 year plus problem sorry like that's the legacy of America, unfortunately. And I think, as someone put it on TikTok, based off the history, most of American history, Black people were enslaved. So you can't just ignore it or think that there's some easy way out. What we need are bold solutions, bold solutions that get at the roots of the problem. And so, if you're not finding ways to advocate, support, and uplift those kinds of solutions and the people who are providing those solutions, who are oftentimes Black, it might I add Black women, you've missed it. That is literally the only way forward. There is actually no alternative route in this pursuit for justice. You either listen to Black people or we all suffer as a result.
0: Also, by the way, this is a, a never-ending journey. But I always think that there is, as history has shown, there is going to always need to be a checking of white supremacy. And I think that also goes with personal anti-racist work. You're not done. You've got to constantly work at anti-racism because it is so ingrained in our society that we are like on a cellular level imprinted with it. There's a bias that is in ourselves that we've got to overcome. And the fact that people think, well, you know, I went to that Zoom that Angela Davis was talking about. So I'm, no, it's not enough. You got to work every single day and you've got to make the choice with every decision, whether it be where you make your money or spend your money, whether it be where you invest, whether it be how you divest. Every decision you make has to be with this intention to
2: work towards a non-racist society? 100%. I think the way to think about it too, by the way, as people, we just want to become better. So the way I would like to frame this to people is if you want to become a better person, you're going to work at that, right? Like you're going to find ways to help you become a better person, right? Adam Grant's not trending for no reason. People are trying to learn how to be better human beings. And I think what this book does a great job of doing is saying the case for being a better human being involves humanizing Black people and involves valuing Black life. If you're not flexing that muscle every day, it's going to get weak and it's going to be susceptible to anything that comes across it. So you might see something that's incredibly biased or discriminatory. And because you haven't been flexing that, that muscle, you might automatically believe it. And so the idea here, as you were saying, is that how are you going about your every day of educating yourself about how do I become a better human being, not just the people who look like me, but the people who don't look like me. And that's something that as a person you can relate to for sure. I I would imagine. And so I think this book, in my opinion, is a really great way of practically showing you how that can show up in some of the bigger areas that we're dealing with and how you might be able to advocate for that in your own community.
1: It's such
0: an important book. I want to talk about some of the essays. First, are there any that really stick with you? Yes. Tell me.
2: I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I have one favorite that I always say. And it's I, I love them all, by the way. There's an essay by Dr. Lauren Mims. She is a psychologist that used to work for the Obama administration. Currently, she's a professor. And so in that essay, it's called On the Brilliance of Black Girls. And she talks about how she was teaching a classroom of Black girls. These Black girls are deemed by the educational system as troubled, some of them are teen mothers, some of them are individuals who are considered disruptive in class. And so she basically asked them, why do you think you're here? Why do you think you've been invited to this classroom?
1: Welcome to our very first session, the instructor says with a huge smile. Some girls whisper hello, while others glance at the clock. So why do you think you were recommended for this program? The instructor asks. The instructor twirls the piece of chalk while she waits. Uh, because I am a bad student, one girl exclaims from the back of the room. Some girls nod in response, and the instructor pauses, wondering if she should write that response on the board. Her shoulders sag a bit, but she writes the phrase on the board as another student yells, Because I am loud and ghetto! Followed by, and because I am a teen mom. Students continue listing
2: all the negative reasons they must have been asked to stay after school for a new program. And they start shouting out answers. One of them says, because I'm a teenage mom. Another one says, because I'm disruptive. Another one says, because I'm a troublemaker. And so Dr. Mims is writing all of these answers on the board one by one. And in the essay, she talks about how she tried not to cry. And this is the essay that makes me cry. Every time I read it, I I always get teared up. Basically, she lets them go on as they're basically dispelling the, I would say harmful beliefs that they have about themselves. In my opinion, this essay does a great job of showing how the systemic beliefs about black women is then internalized at the individual level. So they're shouting out these horrible things about themselves. At the very end, Dr. Lauren Mims says, all right, are we done? And they say, yes. She takes another chalk and she crosses them out one by one, one by one, replacing, you know, for example, a single mother, you're a mother who has priorities and you want to get your education. A troubled student, you're a leader and that's why you're here, right? This idea of reframing the narrative, changing how you see yourself, but also attempting to, I would say, mitigate the gap between how Black women are viewed systemically and how they're viewed to a Black woman herself. And so at the end of it, they're like, oh my God. So this is like a special program for black girls who are like super smart. And they're like, yeah, they all get super excited. And every time I read it, I'm just like, I feel, I literally empathize with the women, the young women in the room, because I've been called disruptive and I've been called, she's too much and she's too loud. And I'm not saying that's resulted in things like Being super punished, but I've been in trouble because of that or over-policed because of that. And so just to see how an educator was able to intervene at a very critical moment and say, no, you're valued and I'm coming here to show you how you're valued. Well, you introduced the book with a section on climate, and
0: I think a lot of people might not intuitively think climate is an issue that disproportionately affects Black people in the United States, but it is. Can you just
2: talk a little bit about how? Yes. So I want people to go back with me to Hurricane Katrina, which I think took place in 2006. If you don't remember, essentially this hurricane came through the Gulf destroyed a bunch of homes in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans. And if you go back and you look at the images, most of the houses that were destroyed were Black and Brown homes, Black and Brown communities that were destroyed. So Dr. Marshall Shepard, who's a climate scientist, he was the former president of the Meteorological Association of America. What he talks about is the fact that there's something called the climate weather gap. And what essentially that is, is what's happening with the climate is affecting Communities Disproportionately on the ground. The climate crisis is very much about those same familiar issues that Black America grapples with daily. Studies continue to show that African American communities are disproportionately affected by climate-related hazards, such as heat, drought, hurricanes, and flooding, while accounting for a relatively small percentage of total carbon emissions. This so-called weather climate gap is rooted in well-understood disparities associated with income, opportunity, and discriminatory practices. This gap presents a unique danger to Black Americans, making a sharper climate focus essential to the Black community's well-being. And he goes about talking about the fact that Hurricane Katrina gave us a glimpse of what could happen if we don't take climate justice and the climate movement seriously. And the other thing that I thought was really fascinating about this chapter as well, is he talks about the fact that the laws that we have implemented fundamentally bake into our society racist rules and regulations that keep people in certain areas. For example, if you're in a black neighborhood in Chicago, your neighborhood might literally be hotter than the white neighborhood next door just because of how that neighborhood is constructed, just because of the zip code you're in. And that ties directly into Abigail Thomas's essay where she connects to, um, the criminal justice movement or criminal justice system, rather, to the, the climate movement. And she says, look, did you know that there was 589 or more federal and state prisons that are within three miles of a hazardous commercial waste site? So we're talking about people are incarcerated and the only time that they get to go outside They're breathing in environmentally toxic air. That's crazy. You know what I'm saying? And then she goes ahead and says, not only that, but it turns out that building more prisons doesn't make our climate better. It's actually perpetuating the climate crisis. And that goes back to then the criminal justice chapter, the healthcare chapter, the wellness chapter, the policy chapter. And that's one thing that, you know, I was talking to another interviewer about this. They said, did you know that criminal justice actually comes up in every single chapter of this book. No, I did not realize that until you just said it. A little one essay in every single chapter of this book. In different policy areas, these people didn't talk to each other before writing their essay, criminal justice comes up. And so that is something that in my opinion is the common thread. How black people are viewed, the fact that black life is criminalized is very much baked into how we think about the climate movement overall.
0: Thank you for doing this this incredible work. It's really important. I'm going to now shift gears and talk to you a little bit about things that make me want to throw things. So Florida, you mentioned the climate crisis. You mentioned hurricanes. Florida, a lot of hurricanes. They have a bill backed by the fucking governor that would prevent teaching things that make white students feel uncomfortable. I can't even the the rage that I feel. Virginia's governor was elected as we know by campaigning against critical race theory in Virginia schools despite the fact that it's not taught in Virginia's schools. What the fuck is happening with education and race and how do we fix it?
2: Yeah, this is a really great question. A couple things. One, critical race theory is not what people think it is. I would say one, it's a thing in the sense that it's a thing in a very different context. So in the legal context, it's a thing where it's, we're looking at how racism informs the laws and that's just literally reflecting like history, right? We're looking at how the context is informing the current law. That's essentially what we're talking about when we talk about CRT. The other thing I would say is it's not a thing in elementary schools. It's not a thing in grade schools. It's not even a thing in college. To be frank. And to that point, I find it interesting that people say, I'm uncomfortable that my kid has to learn about the atrocities that white people committed against black and brown folks in history. We've had to learn about the atrocities that y'all committed against us forever. My introduction to black America was black Americans were enslaved. That was my introduction to black America. And so the fact that you're not even seeing that as potentially traumatic for black students is exactly what I'm talking about. You don't value black life if you think about it like that. And I don't mean to sound accusatory. I I, I think it's just, I want people to get a sense of like, here is where empathy comes into play. You are asking for grace to be given to you with respect to not feeling bad about past atrocities committed by people from your racial group. But you're not thinking on the flip side, how those past atrocities have been taught to literally every generation up until this point in a way that shows that black and brown people are disposable, expendable, undervalued, and how that might have a psychological and long-term impact on how black and brown kids view themselves as they grow up through life. This idea of we don't want our feelings hurt. How do you think we felt for the last 400 plus years? I'm Ghanaian American. Africa has barely one chapter in a world history book. It's a freaking continent. And I think that's the thing. There's a level of entitlement there, but there's also a level of pride in that you're too proud to recognize how it's impacting other people. That isn't the way to live as a human being. If you're trying to be a good human being, that's not the way to live. You got to empathize, you got to get to that level. And I think at the end of the day, some of these other individuals that are backing up a lot of these CRT, what they're really doing is saying CRT is the boogeyman. And at the end of the day, we know that if The real history, the whole history of America is unveiled for the world to see. We don't look good. And it's like, okay, I get you. I understand that. But the truth is, we can't grapple with the future until we address the past. And the past has to be completely unveiled for us to do that accurately. And that's why, you know, the Kohanna Jones's 1619 Project, Black Futures, a number of the different recommended readings I have at the end of the book are basically adding that additional context. It's saying, look, the Black agenda is looking to the future, but in order to look to the future, you've got to look to the past. And that's why all of those essays in the book actually start off with the context that is necessary to say, okay, why does this solution need to exist? Because X, Y, Z took place.
0: There's an essay in the book on centering Black children during the pandemic. That essay opens with this mind-boggling sentence. Prior to the pandemic, it was estimated that on average for every $2,227 in school funding received by students in predominantly white school districts, students in non-white districts on average received $1 in funding.
2: That is correct. And I can tell you from personal experience, that is correct. So I'm, I'm a young Black woman. I lived in a fairly low-income neighborhood growing up. I got granted a scholarship. I was a recipient of Head Start. I got granted a scholarship at the end of Head Start. I got the opportunity to go to a private school all through my K-12 education. The experiences I had in my private school were fundamentally different. From the experiences my friends were having back at home. As we move toward
1: a black and brown majority in the US, failing to provide quality education and opportunities to underserved communities can lead to stagnating or falling economic growth and the perpetuation of low income work that erodes at the tax base for the provision of vital government services. It is imperative to address racial educational inequality for the collective societal and individual well-being of all Americans. Correcting for racial inequality in education and accompanying adverse societal impacts means that the federal government must expand school choice in a way that eradicates
2: racial inequality. For example, I'll just give you a real simple example. I had a college counselor. I've been with my college counselor multiple times a week. My friends had a college counselor for the entire grade. That's all I'm going to say about that. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And how how
0: in the world can we expect things to change when there is just this baseline difference like that in our education system? But
2: that's the gag, Alyssa. The facts, that's what's been stipulated. And I think that's why I love this book. It just presents the facts. The fact is, Black people have it. It's rough out here. It's tough out here. It's unequal. It's fundamentally unethical out here. And the facts just show that. We're not even talking about, you take the solution out of it for a second. You look at that number and you say, how on earth is that happening under the watchful eye of the Department of Education? What is going on? And I think just presenting that fact is jarring enough to be like, "Okay." What can I do? Because at my local community, I know that I could join the school board and present the statistic and be like, how are we funding public education in this particular district? And that's what I mean by taking these very practical outlook on these different policy issues and then saying, okay, how do I whittle this down and then apply it to my own context? But I believe that it's fundamentally gonna be about multiple community changes across the country. It's not gonna be some swift policy that's gonna do it. I would love for that to be the case, but we see what's going on. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be, how do you take some of these ideas and implement them into your own community and watch change unfold that way?
0: And then there are things that are completely out of our control. I want to go back to the the conversation about technology, because you also include a section in the book about technology and a particularly fascinating essay by Jordan Harrod called We're Talking About AI Wrong, which focuses in part on algorithmic bias. Let's explain, let's break that down. Let's unpack that for our listeners.
2: Yeah, I think that let's sort of define some terms here. For those who don't know, algorithms are basically the ways that computers think about different decisions, right? That's essentially what an algorithm is. And so the way that someone can code up an algorithm, right? As the AI community went through its
1: nth reckoning on racism, sexism, and algorithmic fairness, I watched researchers, touted as pioneers, disparage the work of others trying to develop equitable systems. In particular, I listened to the language that opponents to algorithmic fairness research used to distance themselves from any personal responsibility over the algorithms they developed and the power they wield as researchers. Many of them focused on reframing themselves as victims, under attack from militant liberalism, and framing algorithmic fairness research as factually
2: unfounded political advocacy instead. They'll have that algorithm learn about a certain decision based on a set of maybe faces or a set of words, and and that's how we come up with algorithms. When we talk about algorithmic bias, what we're really getting at is the data in which is being used to train an algorithm or to train a computer to make decisions is biased in and of itself. And so a very clear example of this for example is like if you're thinking about you want to upload a database of faces and you want to attribute occupations or a criminal record to those faces what you'll find is that black people black latinx certain uh, marginalized groups are disproportionately policed and so if you're training the data on their profiles when you're using that algorithm then to look at a completely different set of Uh, questions. Maybe you're saying, oh, who's more likely to get a job? For example, you might say this black person is more likely to be a criminal and therefore I'm not going to hire them. That's essentially what we're talking about here. So in Jordan's essay, she gets at the fact that AI bias has been thrown around as a term and no one's talking about it precisely. And so she was saying that AI research essentially has to be talked about in a way that is one with care and two with language that reflects the gravity of how algorithms can affect ordinary lives. And that's actually reflected in Deb Raji's essay. It's reflected in Dr. Brandeis Marshall's essay. And that's also, by the way, by design, this idea of all of the different individuals in the technology chapter are computer scientists, first and foremost, but they're Black women. And the very interesting conversation going on right now in the computer science community and the AI community is that the folks who are leading the charge on how do we do this equitably how do we make sure that AI doesn't discriminate unfairly towards different types of people are black women black women are at the helm of that conversation and so that was an intentional effort on my part I said if we're going to have a technology chapter around AI and the future of work and that sort of thing we absolutely need black women to be at the head conversation. And of course,
0: we can't end this conversation without talking about voting rights. They're under assault, aimed specifically at Black voters. Your thoughts on that?
2: One, we were so blessed to have Cliff Albright, who was one of the co-founders of Black Voters Matter, as part of this amazing collection of of essays. And many people know his co-founder, Miss Latasha Brown, who has done quite a bit of work with Stacey Abrams, who's, by the way, running for governor. So, if you're listening in Georgia, please vote for her. But I love Cliff's essay for a lot of different reasons. One is because it's essentially a little bit of a, a hive in that it ties to so many other essays in the book. Ultimately, we can't achieve anything in the Black agenda until voting rights are protected. Voting rights has been a Black American struggle since the inception of America. And so, What's very interesting is if you look at the history, according to Cliff, he says in 1790, Black men were actually allowed to vote in some northern parts of the nation. But then certain codes were implemented into law, and that prevented Black men from voting in the 1790s. And so he says how ultimately the way that folks have gotten around voting rights for Black people is they've used legislation, they've used laws. To then say on this technicality, which then eliminates all black people can't vote. So an example for that is 19 out of the 24 northern states after the end of the Civil War that did not allow black people to the right to vote. What they basically said was like, look, um, if your family was allowed to vote before the Civil War, then you can vote. But if they weren't, you can't vote. Now, where does that put black people? If your family was enslaved before the Civil War, come on. Basically, eliminates you. And so, what I love about the public policy section of this book, which ties directly back into voting rights, is that every essay in this section says you cannot achieve anything without voting rights. And the way to achieve that is actually multi pronged. So, I think a lot of people say we got to advocate for voting rights, we got to register people for voting. 100%. I absolutely agree with that. But the approach to voting rights is multi pronged, it's not just about getting people to the ballot. It's about making sure that there's not legislation that's coming down the pipeline to stop people from the ballot. And so in Dania Francis' essay, she talks about how we literally need Black policy wonks and legislators who understand how these laws are constructed, can pull out the discrimination and say, look, that's racist. We can't have that pass through Congress. And that's essentially how, in my opinion a lot of the conservative leadership in Congress have been able to be so effective under Trump. A lot of people get stuck on the theatrics. I believe this is something that several essays talked about. You get stuck on the theatrics. Oh my God, he's banning Muslims. He's banning Black Muslims. That's horrible. It is horrible. But while he's doing that very horrible thing in the public, there's worse things happening in private. A lot of the federal judges right now are conservative. Mitch McConnell was able to get all of the things he wished for, which is why he didn't come out swinging against Trump, even though he had been saying something earlier on. The idea here is that, and this is something I learned from the movie Vice, shout out to satirical filmmakers, the Vice movie is about Dick Cheney and his role in being able to shape the conservative movement of the modern decade. And so what they basically talk about is the conservative leadership is really good at organizing. I think people underestimate that. And what the essays in this book talk about is we have to be just as good because at the end of the day, there are different entities. They're working together. They're synergy. They're synergized.
0: It's a united front. And we don't have that on our side. We're like, I was on a Zoom the other day and I swear to God, they were like, what seats are up in the Senate? I'm like, guys, it's February. We we needed to be organizing about the midterms last year, two years ago. It's
2: February. We're just not great at it. And I think that's what this essay or these essays are pointing to. We have to pass voting rights legislation that protects Black voters. But we also need legislators and policy wonks that can identify racist legislation. I
0: love that. We need both. And it's it seems like a no brainer. There's so much to take away from this book. But if you wanted readers to have like one
2: takeaway from the collection of essays, what would that be? I would say the takeaway is the best outcome for Black people is a better outcome for you, for me, for anybody, regardless of their race, background, gender, or class. That's it. And that's what this book advocates for. The best outcome for Black people is the best outcome for us all. And finally, Anna, what gives you hope? This book and the next generation that is digging into it. For me, I think that is really what is going to carry us forward. Those who are coming after us are very much about this work. We see that through the climate movement. We see that through the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in 2020 and beyond. Young people are standing up and I'm here for it. So that's what gives me hope. That's what gives me hope. Will you give me
0: hope. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you for this book. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. Just thank you.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate you.
3: executive board members, and the like? Did your corporation or organization scramble to throw together a solidarity statement for your website during the summer of 2020? Maybe an email went out to all of your employees and constituents stating your company's efforts towards addressing and combating systematic racism that included goals that simply weren't measurable. Did you say and do these things while your black essential employees remain unjustifiably underpaid compared to their white counterparts? Nope, that's right. You removed Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben from the grocery store shelves. But let the racist GMs and hiring managers keep their job.
0: I have said it before and I will keep saying it. Saying you're anti-racist is not enough. In fact, it's barely a start. Allyship involves listening. Really listening. It also involves getting out of the way to let other people lead and using all of our privilege to destroy our privilege. We're in an especially dangerous time in America. COVID, anti-democracy politicians and their followers... Huge wealth disparities, gender disparities, health disparities are plaguing our nation. And while they may affect us all, their effects are most felt by people of color. If we're truly being allies, we're centering the ideas, plans, proposals of Black experts and giving those experts the power to enact policy that will transform our nation. If that makes you uncomfortable, fucking get used to being uncomfortable. America is not safe, not free, until all of us are safe and free. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.